0: Welcome to the Sisters of Christ podcast, where we are here to grow in faith, boldness, and love together. You're going to hear some incredible stories, testimonies, and wisdom from fellow sisters who have been transformed by their relationship and walk with Jesus. As you listen to the podcast, my hope for you is that you will be inspired and encouraged to walk boldly and confidently in God's calling for your life. I'm Jeanette Bordeaux, daughter of the Most High King and your host. And sister, I'm so grateful you're here. This isn't your Average Christian women podcast. We're going to hit on some topics that you may have never talked about in a church setting before. We go deep and we get real, but all in love. So get ready and let's dive in. welcome back to the Sisters of Christ podcast. I am so glad you're here. We are in the middle of the racial reconciliation series where I have interviewed women who are leading the conversation of race within their church and in their communities. And today we're going to hear from Maria Abdulkaf, my friend and also the Deacon of Justice and Mercy at Trinity Grace Williamsburg in Brooklyn, New York. So Maria has really been teaching on this topic and reconciliation for years at Trinity Grace, but she just recently finished teaching a six-week Erebon course. Um, Erebon is a ministry that provides courses to different communities and really is focused on equipping and empowering the church for reconciliation. So you're going to hear us reference this course and also the founder, David Bailey, throughout this interview. So Mari is going to share with us how we can all become a reconciling community, and most importantly, what her experience has been like as she's grown up as a black woman immigrant in white America. It has been such an honor to interview her and to give us her time. So I really just want all of us to honor her by putting away any distractions or anything that may take your focus during this interview so you can open your hearts and open your minds and really listen. So let's get started.
1: First, before we get started talking about you know the amazing six week course and like your experience, how are you doing? We just had our last yeah. class last night, so how do you feel after all that? I mean, it's
2: it's kind of like you know you finish a marathon and there's like a high, which I experienced last night of just finally finishing this sort of marathon in this course, and then like it took me a long time to fall asleep last night because I think I was reflecting a lot on like what's happened over the last six weeks and everything that sort of has happened over in between those Monday courses. You know, we've been having our classes on Mondays and there's a lot of conversations that get sparked in between those sessions. Like folks will often um, email me, call me, text me, ask me questions, a lot of follow-ups and it like pushes me and it pushes them to sort of dive deeper and deeper. So I think like, Thinking about that, reflecting that and seeing how far a lot of folks have come when it comes to understanding reconciliation as Christians, when it comes to understanding racial reconciliation as Christians has been a really awesome thing to witness, to bear witness to. Um, But I am glad it is, you know, it is over just kind of a, a relief a bit because I, you know, leading the classes takes a bit of a toll on me And so I think I'm excited to sort of like have at least a few days, hopefully a week of just like rest um, because the classes took a lot out of me. So I think like very reflective over like what folks have learned, what folks have shared with me, the way in which the course material has strengthened people's understanding reconciliation has given folks like new terms, new definitions and new points of entry um, but I'm also just like really tired and, um, I'm, I'm glad that it's, it's done because I hope that folks are going to do something with it next, you know, cause I think my only hope is like, it moves beyond this class because the class doesn't really matter if like the actions after the class, like don't sort of live up to what we've learned. So I'm more excited about like the future of everyone who sort of attended and, the way in which they engage the other people, the way in which they engage their families and all those things. So I'm excited for people, Very reflective and sort of retrospective moment for me right now. Um, and, but I'm also very tired
1: and very glad that it's uh, it's come to an end. And I didn't realize that you were getting like so many people reaching out to you, like in between and like asking questions and stuff like that. So what was that like what were some of the questions or like what was that like
2: Yeah so for instance let's say like a couple of weeks ago we spoke about the five principles of being a reconciling community the five principles being vulnerability um hold on let me remember all five uh five principles being intentionality vulnerability lament confession and repent And that was a really couple of hard weeks for folks because folks hadn't sort of been thinking about those things individually, because oftentimes when Christians think about repenting, they think about confession, they don't think about action. And so I was getting a lot of questions about, well, what does it mean to repent of systemic racism if there's a historical Understanding of systemic racism, like, what am I supposed to do? And, and mainly these questions would always come from usually white folks, um, specifically white women. And a lot of the questions during that time was, what does it look like to repent of systemic injustice? And so I would push folks to sort of give me an example of what they think that actually means, because I can only give you a definition so many times, like, I can't really be there to work through it for you. And so when people ask me questions, I actually, I actually like, ask them questions back because I want them to be able to move past like me being the center of that information. So someone had emailed me to ask me, Hey, like I'm, I'm having a difficult time understanding, like, how do I repent of systemic racism? How do I confess? How do I lament? Um, is, is, is repenting is confession me signing petition?" Uh, petitions to, um, revoke laws that are, that are, um, sort of aiding police brutality, aiding, um, you know, detrimental police practices. Um, am I, e- is emailing my senators about asking for justice for Elijah McClain? Is that justice? Is that, is that reckoning? Is that repentance? And my question to that person was, what are you doing with those actions? Like, are those actions that you're taking repenting? Are they trying to, um, take an action against something that's unjust. And so I asked this person and they responded, well, ideally, yeah, they would like lead to that. And so my response was, okay, like if you're taking actions that are trying to change, um, that are trying to repent from a system. So if there's a racist policy, if a policy has adverse effects that are negatively impacting a lot of people of color, are you working to dismantle that law? If so, you are repenting from the system. And so I think a lot of folks during those couple of weeks were having a difficult time understanding the real um the real day-to-day ways to practice repenting. And if you are advocating for the dismantling of laws, the um you're emailing your senators about things that are unjust in your community, you are asking your system to repent because you're saying, hey, I wanna, I've, I've recognized that this is sin, that this is this isn't the image of God, like these laws are inadversibly impacting people of color, black people negatively, and they're used discriminately towards black people. And I want to work to dismantle those laws. So if you're working to dismantle things that aren't Fair then you are repenting from a system. And so, um, that, that was a hard couple of weeks as folks really got tied up in like this abstract, like, cause when people think about lamenting, they think of these long, beautiful prayers and they don't often think about like the next step, at least from my experience of what folks have shared with me. So it was a lot of pushing people to sort of understand like how to, how to characterize, how to categorize what actions they were taking and where it sort of fits in terms of being a reconciling community. If that answers your question.
1: Yeah, I know. That's awesome. That's super interesting because I feel like like there's been a lot of repentance, but the repentance that I've seen has been mainly like, like in the church, right. Is like the prayer of repentance, like repenting for like uh, racial reconciliation the sin of racism, like all that, like in our own hearts. But it's, I like the way you tied like an action to it. You're like, this is, can actually be like repentance. Like, and I think it's important to tie tie action to the things. It's like, Oh great. Like you repented to the Lord and that's wonderful. So it's like, then now, how can we take it a step further and actually become more? Well, I mean, so so like, the
2: idea, I mean, the biblical, definition of repent is an action towards turning away from something that isn't the reflection and the principles and the light of god and so to actually repenting is an action like repenting is a a action should be an action and i think oftentimes and um the airborne course really spoke about this beautifully and and david bailey spoke about this beautifully is that Christians often confuse confession with repentance. And so I don't think the church, I don't think our church, I don't think many churches have genuinely practiced repentance. I think a lot of folks have, um, sort of leaped into lamenting. Like, I think the prayer of repentance is really a prayer of lament, lament. I think it's lamenting over things that are unjust of recognizing these things, but If you're just going to recognize an injustice, if you're just going to acknowledge that the church was built on white supremacy, then what you're doing is you're lamenting, you're confessing maybe your role and your complacency, but what you're not doing is you're not repenting because you have to turn away to repent. So if, if, if after that prayer, your church is taking actions to repent the structures in that place that upholds um values that aren't a reflection of God but a reflection of like this Empire, this empire of of pressure of, of oppression and power, then you're not actually repenting what you're doing is lamenting And I think like that's kind of the confusion that I saw a lot of folks have was not quite understanding that repentance means it is an action and lamenting is sort of an inward look and where I think, the Capital C Church and individuals often confuse the two. Um, and that was a hard one for folks. So I definitely spent a lot of time in those weeks. I'm um, sitting with people and trying to weed out the two differences between the two.
1: That's a, no, that's super helpful. And when you say Capital C Church, do you mean like a body or do you mean like this church, like church places, church buildings?
2: Um, yeah, so when I mean Capital C Church, is sort of the culture of churches. I think even as TGC Williamsburg, we're not part of the parish anymore. Um, however, we do sort of gain from understanding of other churches. We are a collective body of churches. And I think the body of Christ to me is different from the Capital C Church. I think you can be in the body of Christ. And not be, not be attending a church, not be a part of the capital C church. And so to me, the capital C church is very intertwined with this capitalistic structure of churches where you have um, sort of hierarchies, you have a system in place. You have sort of a structure of church that's modeled after like the early churches of like having a hierarchy, having a leadership board, having elders, having deacons like that is to me, a model of the capital C church. And when we're working within that structure, we have to understand the ways in which racial bias and cultural bias adds to always having or usually predominantly having white leaders in these spaces.
1: So before we go, I definitely talk about that. Um, but this is your, this this isn't your first time teaching this either or leading like this course, right? You've been doing this for a while.
2: So it's my first time, um, taking folks to the Airborne course. However, like where we've sort of put this course within our larger Heaven to Earth series, which started about a year ago, started last fall. And that course or this series has been reconciling our church um because our church our actual church has done and folks in our church leaders in our church have um not always had the lens of christ when it comes to caring for the marginalized within our community when it comes to caring for the black and our black and brown sisters and brothers and so the series started with a lot of like like lamenting and confession about the wrongs that have happened in our church as it relates to racial bias racial injustices within our specific church and has grown over the last year to sort of incorporate like more material more um more source material i'm not sure if you attended the first couple ones or if this is your first
1: no no, because i just i just started going to dc so i just like oh yeah yeah
2: yeah, so the first two, the model was very different. It was like testimonies from um, black um, and brown folks in the church, as well as some white folks in the church that were sharing sort of on different themes. Like the first ever Heaven to Earth was on a theme of the ways in which uh, being black and brown in our specific church um, has led to a lot of conflict and a lot of tension because. Our concerns, my concerns, weren't viewed as pastoral. They were viewed as political. They were, they were viewed as tension to be absolved, but they weren't viewed as as pastoral responsibility specifically when it came to like microaggressions for me personally, or when it came to speaking about like systemic racism. My issues were viewed as a political issue, not pastoral concern. And so, our first event was sort of speaking about how that the harm that that does and the trauma that causes for black and brown folks. And by having me and a couple other folks in our church share those testimonies in in that space. And then we had small group discussions about, okay, like you just heard Maria and Deezy's story. Like, how are you responding? Like what, what sort of comes to mind for you? And we also had Simon Morrison share um, in that first one as well, who is a white British male and he sort of explaining he was explaining his journey of um being awoken to this sort of call to racial justice ministry and being like uh, essentially the path that he's had to sort of um uh, um the path that he's taken to understanding my concerns my problems as his concerns as his problems and so yeah so our first um session was uh Our first few sessions were very different from this one. It was a lot of like, it was testimony driven. It was conversations driven. We didn't really have, we weren't watching a video or anything like that. It was all created by like me and our other like heaven to earth leaders.
1: Wow. And you've been with the church like so long. I remember when I first met you, you were like, oh, I remember the early days when I was smaller. And and it's crazy because like 300 something people. That show up even on like virtual, but like, what has that experience, I guess, been like for you in like a predominantly white church where you're like, even from the beginning, you've been like super active and like speaking up. And I'd love for you also to touch on the political and pastoral concerns for people who like maybe not understand what that means.
2: Yeah. So, um, this idea of political versus pastoral concerns is a very important one when you're talking about reconciliation within the church. And the really good example that our Airborne series um, highlighted this past week was or last week was if your church, you, the sort of demographic and the racial makeup of your church decides what is political and what is pastoral. And um, it's not biblical. So the way in which we understand what is a pastoral concern and a political concern in the church space right now is, has nothing to do with Jesus' pastoral concerns, has nothing to do with God's pastoral concerns. It has everything to do with the like ethnic and racial makeup of a church space. So for instance, if your church is predominantly natural-born citizens, then immigration becomes a political issue because folks in that space aren't dealing with that. So they don't view it as their issue. They view, speaking about that issue, they view... Um, thinking about immigrants usually as something that like, oh, that's controversial. That's about some that's that's political. That is something that like is sh- the church shouldn't be engaging in. However, if your church is filled with folks who are immigrants who aren't all natural born citizens and that is the predominant makeup of it, then immigration becomes a pastoral concern because if you aren't advocating for immigrants, if you aren't advocating for immigrant rights, then what's going to happen is your church is going to actually be impacted. It, it is, it is, it is sort of the livelihood of that church of the people in that church relies on an, a, on immigration reform, and so in that sense, pastoral a past it becomes a pastoral concern, and it directly relates to how. Different churches speak about police intimidation and police brutality. If your church is predominantly Black and Brown folks who have had firsthand accounts with police, um, then police brutality, issues of police violence in our community, becomes a pastoral concern because it is, it effect- it is affecting our family. However, if your church is predominantly white um the idea of police brutality becomes an idea of politics an idea of reform funding an idea that is sort of abstract from the reality and it's not about family it's about who's in the church and so then it becomes a for instance in our church it becomes a political concern not a pastoral concern um and so it's important to know when you're doing either one and sort of the takeaway from that is that we shouldn't be basing like a pastoral concern should not be based on who is in your church, because who is in your church is not a reflection of God's children. It is a reflection of a section. It is a reflection of a component of a section of God's children, but it's not encompassant of. And so when thinking about pastoral concerns, we need to think about the heart of God and the heart of God is God's children. And so that includes every nation. And so therefore immigrants regardless of our the makeup of our church the citizenshipry should be a pastoral concern when it comes to police brutality regardless of the predominant whiteness in our specific church it should be a pastoral concern because if you view me as family then my concerns my lived reality should be your concern should be your should be something that you're advocating um for on my behalf as well and fighting with me so yeah, so it's definitely it's it, you know it's I feel like it's an easy thing to explain because I because I I think but I know that it's a hard one for folks to really digest and sit with because it's not often the ways in which we speak about what is a pastoral concern and what is, you know, quote unquote political.
1: Yeah, no definitely because I remember that was one of the classes where I was just like, wow, I can't believe it's been this way. Like and it's just so described so clearly with political and like pastoral because I've heard, you know, different friends who they're like, "Oh, you're making this about politics." Or like any time you talk about like different like issues of like race and stuff like that, it always gets this weird space where you're just like, "But it's not politics, like
2: these are people." Yeah, and I mean, it's like thinking about like who those friends are, like. If uh, the idea of racial tensions being political has never come up for me when I'm in a predominantly black and brown space, it is my lived reality. Like it is my story. It is the story of uh, black people in this country, of immigrants in this country. So it's not a political concern when it is when that adversity, when those tensions are at the sort of bedrock of your identity and your rights in this space. So if you're in a if I'm in a predominantly white space, and I speak about things that are unjust, I speak about, for instance, like the ways in which um, I, you know, will experience racial bias on a day-to-day basis. Whether it comes from folks questioning my educational background, whether it comes from folks wanting to know, like where I'm from and what my educational background is, or from folks not assuming that I um, you know, come from a place of um uh, of education or assuming that like I'm in this place as like a diversity hire, I'm in this place as a person who's not qualified, who's in the room because they sort of need to me a quota. Like there's a lot of um microaggressions that are bred from People thinking that I'm in a space or in a room because of the color of my skin and not because of the content of my character and what I can bring to that company. And so when people make that assumption, then they make assumptions about me and my intelligence, which leads to like me speaking out and saying, Hey, that is racist. Hey, that is a microaggression. That's, oh no, that's political. Like you're getting into political territory by talking about race because race is seen as political. And so. I think it's like it's only in predominantly white spaces where my identity in my race becomes political because I'm not seen as as the as the rest.
1: That's super messed
2: up. I'm usually one of the only black people on my teams. And so when people started to come to me for, to source diverse candidates, it really I really had to reckon with the fact that I did. I personally didn't have a lot of black candidates I could reference because my entire work experience has been with predominantly white people and specifically with white men. So I had to sort of reckon with that on a personal level. And obviously, like the way in which we source candidates now at work and the way that I always recommend people to sort to source candidates isn't by who you know, because who you know oftentimes is what reinforces Um, structures of power that do not benefit the marginalized. And so it's best to sort of widen your pool as wide as possible and sort of throw a really wide net. so You you get as many candidates as you can. And so when you're searching for a candidate for a job, not just posting on LinkedIn or Greenhouse, but being intentional about the sort of backgrounds that you're looking at. So maybe you're looking at um, sort of different groups of their groups of, you know, Black, black journalists, black video producers, people of, of color journalists, of audio producers, and there are these networks that people subscribe to. So it's like posting your job, um, listing on those services as well. So you're not always going for like word of mouth and aren't going for a connection because oftentimes like connections usually benefit like white people and they don't often benefit the marginalized. And so therefore it's important to recognize like how you're sourcing candidates. It's not to say that you can never hire a referral candidate. It's to say, make sure that that net is as wide as possible. So you have as many diverse candidates as possible and not to depend on your employees to sort those, to source those candidates for you. Um, because if my, if my workplace has always looked like this, like who, who am I actually going to know? Like I, there are people that I admire that I like and I will source them out because I do subscribe to a lot of um, like black journalists and a lot of black video producers. And so of course I will say, hey, like I follow this person or this person is really cool, but I can actually connect you to that person because I don't actually know that person. So it's like, I can tell you people that I follow, people that I'm not sure if they would be, I'm not sure if they're, um, if they would be interested but i follow them online so might as well give them as a source so i think with all of that the point of contention has always been it's not that i'm necessarily offended when someone asks me just to help them source a diverse candidate it just poses a really a point of tension for me because it makes me realize and recognize um the ways in which i am one of quote unquote one of the few in the spaces i've been in so therefore i don't get exposed to other people who are who are like me and so when I go to a, a conference um, that is for Black journalists, Black video producers, now I try to get as many, like, contacts as possible because my day-to-day job doesn't allow me for that diversity, It doesn't allow for that diversity to exist in my, in my, in my network. So I have to, like, be proactive about seeking that. Just because I'm a Black woman, it does not mean I know all of the Black, you know, video producers that exist in media I have to actively seek it. And to me, it was a good reminder for myself. But then also, it's a good practice for everyone. Like, just because I'm Black, it does not mean I know the best Black female candidate for this job. Um, we all need to sort of expand our networks and be intentional about, about seeking diverse networks. And so there's work that I have to do as well. To have that, um, to have that network in my life. It does, it doesn't come naturally for me because of the spaces that I work in, in tech and science.
1: Yeah. 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 That's super helpful. And that's like something we talked a lot about with like being intentional about where like you're building community. And I liked the, the phrase, um, David used of hello, where it's like, it means peace, but also flourishing. Um, so I'd love to, and what that actually looks like, because I feel like we have this like, cute idea of what peace really is. Um, But I think, I like the way he described it as like, are we combining like the song with the week? And, you know, does every, is everyone in our community like flourishing together, not just in one space or one race or whatever. So if you could share a little bit about that, I'd love.
2: Yeah, so the idea of flourishing has been a really important one in our courses. And what it means to flourish is that everyone um can experience um sort of the full magnitude and blessings of God without limitations. So for me to flourish in a community is not for me to have limitations around what I can and can't do. Like if I'm meant to flourish in this community. I should be able to um, sort of embody all that God has for me without restrictions placed on me because of my gender or my race. And so for us to seek the flourishing of our black community in Williamsburg, it means to seek the economic equality. It means to seek that folks can actually like pay for groceries without um, having without spending everything that they have, that they've made that week, it means like economic justice to flourish isn't just to like, you know, have a really great spiritual, spiritual um, mindset, but to be able to afford food, to be able to afford shelter, to be able to have opportunities, it's not just to get them as good as they can get for, you know, their social economic bracket, but to get them to have that for them to have as equal opportunities as as everyone else. And so for me to have an equal opportunity as everyone else, that my race and my gender aren't limitations around um, what I can actually do that, like I'm meant to sort of have economic justice. I am meant to have, um, you know, justice for my rights, for my ability to function in society that I don't need to just um, adhere to what Folks say I can and can't do because I'm a black woman, but I can actually, I'm empowered to equality in every single way possible without limitations placed on me. And a big thing that, you know, our last session on Airbond spoke, uh, David Bailey spoke about was this idea of understanding what it means to experience racism in our generation. and. As quote unquote millennials, this idea that, oh, you have a diverse group of friends, you know, you have a black friend, you have Puerto Rican friends. So therefore, like, you're not racist. But what you're missing there is, are your friends flourishing? Like, am I flourishing? I'm not. Like, I am I still, am I fearful of, like, the police? Yes. Have I had really bad experiences with the police? Yes. Do I have this extra surveillance on me when I'm shopping at a nice boutique? Yes. So, am I flourishing? No. So, what we're seeking is that when I, you know, in this capitalistic structure, when I'm navigating spaces, people aren't watching me closer because of the content of my, because of the color of my skin. And so, therefore, I'm not flourishing in our society because there are restrictions around like how I can grow, right? For instance, like I'm leading the series. However, am I, di- am I, am I really diverse for TGC Williamsburg? Not really. A lot of folks in the space are, um, have a college degree. They're middle, middle, upper middle class. I am a woman of color. I am a black woman. Socioeconomically, there isn't a lot of diversity in our church space, and we need that sort of diversity as well. It can't just be that we're getting all the, um, black hipsters that sort of, have assimilated. I am a, in, in many ways, I'm a person who has assimilated so much to white culture as an immigrant. Um, so to me, like, I'm constantly working on deconstructing that, like, deconstructing the, um, ways in which I have been made to assimilate, like, my accent, my voice, the way that I dress. So much of it has been dependent on white culture because I was told, Hey, if you, don't, if you don't straighten your hair, if you don't dress like this, if you don't speak like this, we're not going to hear you. Like, we're not going to see you. Um, when my hair is in a fro, people treat me differently from when my hair is straightened. It is, it is a 180. I've done that, like, from, you know, a Monday to a Tuesday where I change, you know, the way that I style my hair, and it changes the way people interact with me. Like, my accent changes the way people engage with me. What I'm wearing changes the way people interact with me however I have a friend one of my best friends Karis she changes her hair all the time she's white she wears the most sort of um you know a variety of outfits you know she will wear like a really large shirt um with like you know shorts I I don't feel comfortable doing that because the moment that I Sort of and giving people this idea that I may not have money or that I may not be middle class, then people treat me differently when I walk into a store. So I don't feel comfortable, you know, going to this, uh, going to a store in an oversized shirt and shorts because I'm treated so differently from when the things I'm wearing are fitted, where she does not care what she's wearing when she goes into a store, oftentimes where I do because what I've worn into a, a store has changed the way people treat me. And so all of that to say, like, for me to flourish, like my friend Karis, means for me to experience freedom in navigating spaces without having to adhere to a certain look, to a certain accent, to a certain hairstyle. Wow.
1: Yeah, that's really sad. The question I had, I I think that would be really and maybe helpful, I think it's going to, this, everything you just said is, like, helpful to a lot of people, um, so many different ways, but I think one way, if you could care, if you have any, like, things that you've done that's really helped you, like, like you were saying, I have to deconstruct this, like, assimilation that I've gone through to be treated, like, a certain way, like, how, how can people start to deconstruct that?
2: Yeah, so I so I guess a little bit background on me, like I was born in Ethiopia, I moved to the US when I was seven on a green card lottery. So my parents won green card lottery, which essentially allows you to move to the United States uh, with your immediate family, you know, thankfully, my parents you know, decided to bring me with them. And so, you know, here I came. And so we moved to Dallas, Texas. And once I got to Dallas, like I spoke a little bit of English. I still had a very thick Ethiopian accent. And, you know, as you're growing up and as I was growing up and I was in school, um, kids used to call me snakehead because I grew up having braids. And so like my earliest memory of like being in school was hating my braids because um, specifically the white boys I went to school with would call me snakehead. And If my my mom used to put like beads at the end of my hair, which I really liked growing up in Ethiopia, like I really liked having beads in my hair. But if I had beads in my hair, um, like they like kids would like mess with my the beads in my hair, and then just call me like a snakehead. And so I started to really like not like my braids anymore, even though I I loved my braids before I, I moved to Dallas. And so I begged my mom to straighten my hair, like chemically straighten it, and she was like. I don't think you I don't think we should do this because when you chemically straighten your hair, it changes the entire structure of your hair. And I was getting picked on so much for my hair that it just didn't seem like it was worth it. I, you know, obviously I was like, you know, like ten or eleven by the time I was like, I wanna permanently straighten my hair, and my mom finally agreed to it. Like she didn't agree to it for a while, but she finally agreed to it, and then I started wearing my hair straight. And so I was getting picked on a lot less when it came to my hair. But then people would pick on me because of my accent. Like I had an Ethiopian accent. And so sometimes the words that I would say, like my accent was very sing-songy. And so sometimes people would like call me a bird or whatever. And like would kind of pick on me for the way that I would speak. And so I would watch um, popular shows on like TV and try to mimic their accents. And so... I realized, you know, I would watch a lot of shows of characters like based in California. And so a lot of like 90210 and, you know, Clueless and all of these like white characters that were very like, you know, quote unquote, like a valley girl. And I and I wanted that accent because valley girls were, you know, you know, were all over TV when I was growing up. And so I wanted to model my accent after that. And obviously, as you hear me speak, like a lot of folks do often ask them from California. I've never lived in California. However, I wanted that accent. So no one in my family sounds like me. I'm the only one in my family who sounds like me because I, I sought after this accent. I just did not want to sound like what I didn't, I didn't want to have an Ethiopian accent because it just people kept picking on the way that I sounded, the way that I spoke. And so, you know, by the time I was in middle school, My accent, you know, I had a very, I had a, you know, quote unquote, like valley girl accent. I was always straightening my hair and I would make sure like the things that I was wearing, for instance, were always like form fitting because I also realized that, for instance, when my mom would take me to the store, we would like go to Best Buy or something. And if my mom like takes me to Best Buy and she, you know, isn't wearing like, you know, nice jeans and a nice chop. She's wearing like an oversized shirt or something. The clerk is more, uh, has more questions around like her credit card or her check or whatever. There's more like a hesitation to actually supply her with like a PlayStation or whatever we would buy. Like I remember oftentimes like getting in the car and like, you know, my mom just like being so sad and so angry at the way that customer service folks treated her when she... Because oftentimes... So my mom worked in a factory, like in a packaging factory. And so if, you know, we're going to Best Buy and she's wearing something similar to what she'd wear at work, which is kind of like a very blue collar outfit, and then she takes me to Best Buy, we're not treated the same as if, uh, you know, if we're wearing a nicer outfit, if, you know, we've like, you know, have our hair straightened and every... We sort of look, quote unquote, like more put together then we're treated differently. And so for a while, I thought that it was like a class issue. I thought that like people were treating us the way they're treating us because, you know, we were, you know, we weren't very rich, we weren't very wealthy. Like I grew up, you know, in like a lower middle, you know, I'm not sure if there's a lower middle class, but we were, we were poor. I, I never like struggled for food, but we, we were poor. I mean, my mom, you know, worked a like minimum wage job. So that was our that was our life. Like there was no savings or none of that. But my mom always made sure that like we were present. we were as presentable as possible because she saw that our treatment was different. And so she invested in the way that I looked. She invested in uh, the way that we behaved, quote unquote, because she just didn't want us to continue to have to experience adversity because of class However, by the time I was in high school, I sounded like a valley girl. My hair was straight. I, I had nice put-together outfits, but I still was getting mistreated. People would say things like, you're pretty for a black girl. Oh, um, are you, are your parents like lawyers? Like, why do you speak like that? So people started, sp- oh, you want to sound white. You're trying to sound white. So then people started picking on me for my accent again this time because they were like oh you sound white um and there was this like quote-unquote like club or whatever that was called like i hate maria the Want to Be white brawl which to me still is like you know the dumbest name for a club ever but like whatever i guess if you're trying to be obvious like be obvious and that to me was really wild to find out even if it was like a joke club people still did decide that they wanted to have solidarity around like disliking me um, because of my voice, because of my hair, because of the way that I was trying to assimilate. And so by, by the time I got to high school, I realized, okay, it's not a class thing. Like, there are people who just do not like me. And it has a lot to do with my race. And it has a lot to do with uh, racial tensions in the U.S. And it has nothing to do with the way that I behaved. And I realized in high school that no matter the way that I sounded, no matter the way that I was dressed, people were going to find a way to push me to the side. And it wasn't until I got to um, college that I understood that a lot of these things that were happening to me were like microaggressions, like, you know, subtle ways of discriminating against me because of my like racial identity, you know, like a microaggression is like an act, a statement, anything uh, indirect that is meant to, um, intentionally, even though it's it's unintentional, supposedly, it is meant to discriminate me to put me in my place, you know, And oftentimes people really want to put me in my place, they wanted to remind me that I was like this black person who like did not belong. And so and it became apparent when I got into colleges, like I, you know, I was in the top 5% of my school and yet people would, you know, joke that I was like, uh, Oh, you got into the school because you know, Like uh, affirmative action is like the reason that you got into college, like not because I was the smartest, one of the smartest people in my school, which to me was wild from having kids that copied my homework to say that I was affirmative action. You know, um, the reason I got into college, I had one of my really one of my best friends in high school who was white, said to me, constantly made fun of me. Uh, and I, and I thought it was funny, like, ha ha ha, yeah, I'm the affirmative action hire, like, or, or I'm, I'm the affirmative action, um, uh, enrollee, like, whatever, ha, ha ha, like, laugh at that. Because I was like, oh ha, that's so funny, you know, Josh, ha ha ha. But then I realized, wow, like, this kid's copying my homework. And he got into, you know, he went to USC and it's like, so what were you? Like, are you the cheater that got into school? Like, am I, am I supposed to, like, minimize you as well? And, And it took me a long time to understand like what my friend was minimizing my accomplishments because of my skin, even though this person was copying my homework. And in high school, I had friends like one of my people who, in, in, in hindsight, I don't think they were friends to me. I think they thought they were being friends, but I don't, it's not the definition of friendship that I know now. A lot of my friends often picked on me and they would highlight my race as a way to undermine me. So like my boyfriend in high school was um, Jewish and he was white and moms like my, my best friends and their moms would make remarks about how, Oh, well, wow, like it's so great that you and Max are dating. Uh, but you know that like you guys, you guys probably aren't going to settle down, you know, cause he'll probably need to settle down with like a white girl, probably like a Jewish girl. And like, people will just remind me that like, I probably shouldn't be with my boyfriend or that like, we won't make it. Not because we're teenagers, but because I'm black. And so that was like really, again, like hurtful because it was reminding me again that like my actions, the love that I showed people didn't matter, that everything that I did was always going to be measured by my skin. And I and I would laugh at that. I would just laugh along with that. Like I was just I sought so much to absolve the pain that I was feeling and the hurt that I was experiencing, the trauma that I was experiencing. So I spent a lot of time just like laughing with them. And it wasn't until I got to college I went to Vassar College, a liberal arts college in, in New York, that I realized that I began to sort of deconstruct these narratives. So to now answer your question after showing you the way in which many ways in which the way that I assimilated to deconstruct for me in college meant to, you know, I cut off all my hair, my, um junior year and you know essentially like shaved it off so that I no longer had like permed hair I shaved off all my hair I no longer wanted straight hair because I realized so much of what I thought was beauty was tied to straight hair because I'd been picked on for having non-straight hair and so I wanted so 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 badly to like fit in and so I shaved all my hair off to you know so essentially like have non-chemically processed hair, I began to realize like what my ideals of beauty was through that for sure. And to deconstruct like being pretty didn't mean being like skinny and blonde. Like to me growing up being pretty meant being skinny and blonde. And because I wasn't skinny and blonde, I just never really believed that I could like be beautiful. I thought I could maybe, I thought that I was, I have always thought that I was like pretty for a black girl But being pretty meant being um, white because a lot of my friends, friends (laughs) and friends, parents growing up would say like, oh, you're so pretty for a black girl. Again, reminding me of my race to put me in my place as a way of reminder to put to essentially put me below them. And when you tell someone, hey, you're pretty for this, then it means that what you're saying is that they're actually not beautiful. They're they're beautiful by qualification. And so. It took me a long time in college to sort of not want to be like white, not want to have blue, blue hair. I was like, I'm never going to have blonde hair like I'm that's not going to be me. Like, I don't I don't want that. I, I, I wasn't going to get that. But I realized that to deconstruct ideals of whiteness, white beauty meant to let to grow out my natural hair and to not be envious of, of blonde women because I was constantly compared to them as like less than. And then with my accent, I think that's been kind of the thing that's been the hardest and the thing that I grieve the most because, you know, I can't change my accent. Like, I I mean, I could, I could, I could work at it. It would require, like, I I don't know how I would have like an authentic, authentic Ethiopian accent anymore. Like, I don't, I don't know what I would sound like if I didn't seek to, you know, sound like these like California girls I saw on TV because they weren't being picked on, so I don't know what that sounds like. So for me, like a lot of deconstruction has also been accepting who I am now and not hating my voice. Because I, I, I once I realized that I had really assimilated and that I assimilation was so such a part of my identity. A core part of my identity is my voice, the, the actual, you know, the the which allows me to say these words right now, and realizing. I can't really change that. Like I can't change that naturally. That would have to be something I force myself into doing, and I just don't even know what that process would be. Like it wouldn't be authentic. Uh, and so I, I, I still struggle with the way that I sound because if I was given, if I was allowed to flourish as a child, I wouldn't sound like this. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have idolized women who sounded like this because I would have been able to authentically grow. And so part of deconstructing, you know, m- my own, the, my, the ways in which I've been forced to assimilate in this country has also been accepting a few things that I just can't change. But I know that that means that like when I, you know, like have children one day or when I, ha- well, I have, fr- I have a lot of friends who have kids like to make sure that they don't think that they have to sound a certain way to be seen and to be heard. And so that's kind of the way that I can deconstruct that going forward is making sure that the voices I'm listening to don't all sound like me so that I'm not just appreciating, you know, people who've assimilated similarly to me that I'm that I'm appreciating a much more diverse array of voices. So, um, yeah, that's like a lot of like my deconstruction journey is like seeing where I am and then like it obviously spreads into like my church and Christianity and my workspace of understanding that like i can have like black idols i can have um people that i look up to that aren't white because growing up i didn't have that option like i just didn't have like i wasn't given to that at school i went to predominantly like white schools and I, i wasn't given the option to sort of look up to anyone that was black it was like you're looking up to these to these women to these men usually white men and i couldn't be a white man so i had to like settle for something less than being in a black woman's body so yeah so it's just like a lot it's a lot of like active work this like deconstruction process because when your identity has been something that you've been forced to assimilate into you've been you've been forced to adapt to this environment then the crux of who i am isn't really authentic because I didn't get to decide what I was interested in pursuing. Other folks told me what I could pursue in order to be seen and heard. And instead of, instead of, you know, growing up being like, I don't care if people listen to me or I don't care if I'm not seen, I so desperately wanted to be seen. So I tried to fit in as best as I could, which unfortunately was like detrimental to like my long term identity and something that I'm working, you know, work. It's a, it's an active process of um deconstruction
1: (laughs) yeah that's like so important to hear and to share that because i can't even imagine the amount of like black women who have went through that exact same process you know or have like experienced that because we can say like oh we don't care what people think like all day but like when you're a kid like growing up like you totally care and that's like when you're most vulnerable yeah i think there's
2: a difference between like being a rebellious kid who like doesn't care what people think, like you're going to be your authentic self. However, when you are a black kid, it's hard to not care. It was hard for me not to care what people thought because that influenced the way that they taught me that influenced the way in which I was seen that influenced the way that I was respected. You know, I see rambunctious white children in Brooklyn all of the time and they're treated as children. However, when a black child is rambunctious, that person is no longer a child. That child is no longer a child. That child is a problem, a child, a child that's meant to be fixed, that meant to be reprimanded in a different way. And so it's not really a, I don't care that what people think of me, it's to survive, to make it out of where I was to be respected. I had to, it was either assimilate or have even more adversity than I already had. So it's like, Okay, what what door through adversity do I do I want to sort of climb, and do I want to sort of go through? And so I think for for Black children, like not fitting in or um, not succumbing to pressure is, is is very different than what white children who you know when you're looking at TV shows, when you're looking at people in your life, like there are many versions of of white people that are that are celebrated, that are lifting up and. Th- you can't really say the same for uh, black folks within like popular media. So it's you that assimilate and you fit in and you, and you speak the way that the way that you're, you're told to speak to be heard or you're not heard, you're not seen and you have to pave your own path. And there's already so much adversity in paving a path toward assimilation. So like, of course I, 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 you know, I didn't have the hindsight to know that, you know, in hindsight, would I have done things differently? Like maybe, but there was no way to really, I don't know what my experience would have been in. Like, That's like, would people have picked on me more? Would I have been more targeted by the police? Would I have been more discriminated against? Like probably like, have I shielded myself a little bit by assimilating? I don't know because I've still experienced a lot of adversity. Like, I don't know if I would experience, I might experience a bit more culture and class adversity. But I don't know if I'd experience, you know, less adversity because I still, as a middle class woman, still face so much over and subtle and insidious racism. So it has nothing to do with who I am. It has everything to do with who, what, the what and who white America is for the way that I get treated. So I think it's, it doesn't matter the way that like black kids are, are raised as long as the culture and the systems that are being upheld, idealize white culture and and whiteness and don't sort of celebrate inclusion and diversity. And instead, there's a celebration of assimilation for black people.
1: Yeah, like, how do we become like the reconciling like community where everyone is thriving and flourishing? And I mean, I don't think there's just like this one simple answer, obviously. But yeah, I know that's something we've talked a lot about like in our course. And that's really what we, I felt like, I felt like that was really what we were working towards. It's like, okay, Shalom, like reconciling community. What does this look like every day? What does this look like as a community? Like, what do we do? So I'd love to just like get your take on it.
2: Yeah. So going back to sort of the five principles of being a reconciling community, which is intentionality, vulnerability lament, lament, confession and repentance is what I will always go back to. So what do you do? You intentionally seek diversity and inclusion, not diversity and assimilation, right? Like to me, I in many ways, am a representation, I represent diversity assimilated, not diversity included. And so to be inclusive in speaking diversity, it means to seek many different forms of black women, not just black women who sound and 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 dress and and have assimilated the way that I do. It means celebrating every kind of black woman and inviting those black women into our communities. Um, so that means to intentionally seek that out, right? Um and to be vulnerable about seeking that is that you know that you're gonna make mistakes. Because when you're intentional about anything, like when I'm intentional about following Jesus, like I make so many mistakes. And so then I have to allow myself the vulnerability to surrender and say, hey, I messed up. So which brings us to confession. Right. So I think when I met, when you met, when you are trying, you know, new ways to be inclusive and you're being intentional, you're going to mess up. You're going to do things that like don't have the right, the maybe the best ways to you know, incorporate folks into your community. So for instance, like um, you might think, okay, great, great. We're going to seek diversity by letting like all the black people in our church lead initiatives. We're going to, we're going to solve diversity through that. That has some repercussions to it and has some negative consequences. When you're asking black people to hold the brunt of educating a white community that that isn't flourishing that that is actually asking black people to do the work when you're asking just black people to do that work for you 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 that is that that's not flourishing that is asking me to um my identity and and my role in this community to to constantly be educational so thinking through okay like how do we be inclusive in the way that we grow as a community without putting all the burden of work to educate on, on 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 black women in your community there are people out there who are educating let's lean on those folks let's not just lean on like any and every black person that's in your community because they happen to be black like that that to me is something we have to reckon with so you might have intentionally asked this black person to leave this thing but did you ask them is this what they wanted did they actually speak up and say it is what they wanted or did you place that burden on them? and relieve yourself of taking ownership in your education by asking this person to sort of own that for you. And so that's when you re- when you have to recognize, okay, I was intentional but I made a mistake. So now I need to to confess that like I what I did by asking these black women, this black woman to sort of lead us in this way without taking individual ownership was to place a burden of education and ownership onto onto her and not into the larger community. And so thinking through, okay, we made this mistake. Essentially, being intentional does mean making mistakes because you're not going to do things right. So then it means confessing, right? Like You can't just then start a new program a new way without confessing what happened, without owning up to what happened. Because otherwise you're going to make the same mistakes, you know, and I think there was a really good example in the airborne series of where Elena, one of the instructors, spoke about how, you know, her one of her professors in college had made an advance at her and she was uncomfortable. She told her school. And then a couple weeks later, the school said they wanted to have a reconciling meeting. Mm -hmm. At first, she was like, no, hell no. And then thinking more about it, because she does believe in reconciliation, she said, okay, I'm gonna give it a shot. She shows up to this meeting, and there is no admission of wrongdoing by her professor. They just said, Hey, let's move on. They wanted to diffuse the tension. They wanted to diffuse the they wanted to diffuse the tension. They didn't want to actually address the issue they didn't like there was no reckoning there was no acknowledgement of wrongdoing it was hey let's move forward and the professor never owned up to what he had done and that's the way that we should be tackling any time that you do something wrong like it it takes a lot to confess right it takes a lot to confess and a part of reconciling is understanding that like that professor's confession And omittance of guilt and wrongdoing should not be dependent upon whether Elena, you know, the student, like wants to receive it. Like you should confess, regardless of this person's going to receive it, because your path towards redeeming your story should not be dependent upon those that you have oppressed. You should be actively seeking um, the redemption of, of these stories even if the person that you're asking for forgiveness doesn't forgive you, it doesn't mean that you don't start your work. If I can, if I say, Hey, I've done this thing, you know, I've I've offended you in some way. I've I've hurt you in some way. I can not just wait for you to forgive me before I start working on like myself and before I start correcting my wrongs, right? Like, does it mean I wait before I, start engaging with you. Yes, because it is up to you as the victim to sort of set that pace, but it's not up to the victim to guide you to, to help you like, you know, absolve your guilt. You know, confession isn't about absolving guilt. It's about, you know, admitting to wrongdoings. And so when becoming a reconciling community, it's, it's confessing when we have treated black people brown people, people of color as less than when we have when we have um, perhaps when someone when you have maybe perhaps um, not spoken to someone because of the way that they dress, the way that they spoke, the sort of their, you know, Afro um, and they happen and, and, and w- w- the way in which you wouldn't would engage with someone who isn't a person of color. So putting limitations around the type of people of color the type of black people that you engage with is is racist and so thinking about that how do you deconstruct that is being confessional that okay you you like to talk to a certain type of black person not all black people and and, and that is a prejudice that is racist and so when thinking about that how do you become a reconciler you admit that you admit that you are fearful of speaking to Certain types of, if I, if I, you know, on days that I'm righteously angry, people distance themselves from me. And to me, it's wild because it says, Hey, you don't have a right to be angry. And when you are angry, I'm going to distance myself from you. I'm not going to try to understand the righteousness of your anger. I'm actually going to uh, push you away and put you in a corner until, until you are an acceptable amount of anger for me you know and so i and i experienced that that bit a lot and so i think it's when we're saying we're going to be a reconciling community it's examining like the type of not only like a diversity of ethnicities and races but also of cultures right and a, and a representation of cultures and then it's about like repenting so how do i turn away from for instance like if all of your leaders are white. How do you repent of that? It's to make space for non-white leaders to like rise up in your organization or to incorporate more diverse leadership, to seek more diverse leadership to create those roles, not just to acknowledge, Hey, we have an all-white staff. You haven't repented. You've acknowledged the problem. You have maybe have confessed. That you created an all-white staff because you prioritized a likeness and assimilation over inclusion, and so when you when you recognize that, then to repent from that, you have to actively seek the opposite of what you did, which was not seek likeness, not seek assimilation, but actually intentionally seeking diverse, culturally and ethnically, uh, uh, and in folks. So. It's kind of, I think those five principles really help to sort of like have a path towards like, are, are you practicing reconciliation or not? It's like thinking through, okay, what, which of these things am I doing? And you kind of need to be doing them all in a different amount of series, right? Like you can't just stay in intentionality. If your intentionality is always causing adverse effects, then you need to examine, okay, what is the heart of your intentionality? Like maybe... Are you misinformed? Do you maybe not understand certain things the way that you really should? Okay, cool. Then go educate yourself. Go, go learn. Go, go really expand your network. If you continue to sort of um, manifest the same culture in the fr- same friend group, that, okay, like there, there's something wrong, right? Like you were intentional, 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 but the impact and the results are the same, the same, the same. So, repent and turn away from the ways in which you're being intentional to being intentional a different way. So it's just kind of like making sure you're going through all five practices versus just staying and sitting in one.
0: In the season of repentance and turning away from these wrong ideas, these wrong behaviors, these wrong mindsets, these wrong actions, I want us to consciously think about what are we turning toward? who or what is going to inform the way we show up in the world that we reconcile as community that we choose love over hate that we choose right over wrong who is going to inform that and I think also at this time what we're what people are waking up to is that their fault within themselves their mindsets they thought were so right or have failed us so much if we let, politics inform us, if we let the world inform us of how to move forward, if we let anything other than God inform the way that we will move forward, I feel like we're really going to miss it. In Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, Lord says, Before me, no God was formed, no will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior as we're waking up to our own personal faults and our weaknesses in this season, let us not turn to things for, to be our savior. Save me from myself. The things in the world are not capable. Only God is capable. Only Jesus is capable. Apart from me, there is no savior. So especially if you don't have a relationship with God and you're You're trying to figure out how do I move forward in this? I just invite you into relationship with Jesus. I wanna invite you into the beginning, the first step. The first step into something greater than yourself. Invite you into relationship with God to walk you through and guide you and show you what it's really like to live redeemed. And he says those who confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts, will be saved. There's only one Savior. He's Jesus Christ. He's the one that died for you. And if you want to invite him into your life right now to be the Lord of your life, to the Savior of your life, to show you true love and how to love others, you can just pray with me right now. Say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe he is the Lord God. And I want him to be part of my life. God, I invite you into my heart to be Lord and Savior of my life. Walk with me, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that simple prayer, praise God. Because this is the beginning of a journey that is going to transform you from the inside out. And I'd love to hear from you at the Sisters of Christ. um, So we can give you some resources, pray over you, bless you and yes, just praise God. I thank you all for listening to this very important series and sticking around with me. I know they're long, but they are absolutely worth it and they're worth the listen and they're worth the time. They're so worthy guys. So thanks for listening and I'm excited to continue this series with you all. Bye. See you next time.